Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning. Will you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, our minds busy and muddled by this previous week. So many happenings, good and bad, ups and downs, Jesus. We need you. And so, Father, we come before you this morning and we lay all of those things at your feet that we may hear from you this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill our minds, open our hearts to be able to receive the truth of your word, that we might leave here differently than when we first arrived. We thank you for that, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What was your favorite book growing up? I'm talking about the book or the series of books that you could not put down as a kid or you had to read over and over and over again. Maybe for some of you in here, depending on your age or experience, that was something like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, something like that. For others, it might be the Babysitter's Club or perhaps even Harry Potter. My wife, obviously, a fan of the Babysitter's Club, but not for me, not for me, no. Growing up as a child in the 80s, my favorite series of books were the Choose Your Own Adventure books, right? And for those of you who are too young to know what I'm talking about, the Choose Your Own Adventure books were basically video games before there were video games, right? Because here's the truth. Each book was written from a second-person point of view that cast you, the reader, as the primary protagonist to fill a role that was relevant to that story. So in any story, you could be a pirate, you could be an adventurer, a dot, whatever it was, you filled that role. And the catch with these books is that as you began to read, within the first couple of pages, you would be presented with two or three options that would then diverge into two or three more options that would then diverge into a, a litany of different endings that that book could have. And though I probably could not have expressed it at the time, what made those books so endearing to me in that moment as a child is that it caught me up in a story that was larger than myself. It caught me up in a story that was larger than myself. I wasn't just merely reading about events happening to a fictional character. I was the main character in the story. And what made that so amazing and cool as a kid is that it made my decisions have so much more weight when I made them. I mean, I could turn to page 17 and fight the dragon with the sword, and I might find the buried treasure. Or I could turn to page 42 and choose to run away and meet an untimely demise. There was serious weight in which page you decided to turn to. And at a young age, these books whispered something deep within me, 
my soul's longing for greater story and purpose in my life. And though the choose-your-own-adventure books have now are just vestiges of a bygone era, that desire for greater meaning in life still lingers. That desire and yearning for purpose still lingers. Because even as a child, as those days morph from months into years that have now stretched from years into decades, I feel that pull and desire for greater purpose in my life with even more intensity, and it's even more magnified now as an adult. My need for higher purpose seems to orbit kind of around the ethos of my soul. It's something that's always in sight, close enough to see, but never close enough to feel like I can ultimately grasp. And it surfaces. It surfaces in my life through questions that I never wrestled with as a kid, that I do now as an adult. Questions like, does my life matter? How will I be remembered when I'm gone? The truth is, at 43 years of age, I am still that same little kid looking to be caught up in a story bigger than myself. And the truth is, I find myself now pulled between two opposite and distinct tensions, right? On one side, there is a desire to be, have a higher purpose in life, and then there is the reality of my everyday circumstances, Right? Because it's one thing to say, I desire purpose, but it's another thing to try and do that in the monotony of everyday life. It's hard to find greater purpose when I'm having to make the bed, or wash the dishes, or mow the lawn. Where is my higher purpose? And the truth is, is that sometimes, church, I feel like my circumstances can cause me to lose sight of my higher purpose in life. And I'm sure I'm the only one who actually struggles with that this morning, right? The only one who wrestles with trying to find purpose in the everyday circumstances of life. If you said yes to that, you're lying in church. As human beings, we all, if we're honest, innately crave greater meaning in life. And yet we all encounter circumstances in life where we desire higher meaning, or where our purpose feels elusive, if not outright extinct in the midst of those circumstances. And those circumstances that can cause us to lose sight of our purpose can be as varied and different as the number of people in this room. Maybe for some of you, you would say, it is a dead-end job that I feel stuck in. Maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart that's caused you to lose sight of your purpose. Maybe it's an addiction the death of a loved one, the loss of a childhood dream. For me growing up, it was wanting to be a Ninja Turtle, and that was a real hard one to kind of come to grips with as an adult that wasn't going to happen. Or maybe it's just the monotony of everyday life. But the bottom line is, this, this morning, church, I think if we were honest, is that we all experience seasons where we long for greater purpose in our circumstances. And thus, we have a choice, right? We can either resign ourselves to the reality of a midlife crisis, or we can choose to look to a source that is infinitely beyond us to provide a sense of purpose in life. And I got to be honest with you, as a pastor on a pastor's salary, I can't afford that new Corvette for a midlife crisis, (laughs) 
So as a matter of necessity, I have no choice but to look to the latter. And whether you find yourself in a similar financial strait, or whether you have come to the realization that you cannot squeeze eternal purpose out of material possessions, out of status, out of sex, out of jobs, whatever it is you try to fill in the blank, perhaps like me, you've come to a place where you recognize that our source of meaning in life has to come from something greater than ourselves. And the good news this morning, church, is that we are not alone. We are not alone in that. Thankfully, as we open the pages of God's Word, we can see that there were those who experienced circumstances that have caused them to lose sight of their purpose. In fact, Jesus' own disciples, the very men and women who walked and talked with Jesus as he was here on his earthly ministry, faced circumstances that threatened to dissolve their higher meaning in life. And as we're about to see, Jesus in his grace and his mercy, steps into the fray of their disillusionment and reorients their sense of purpose by inviting them into a story that is greater than their own. And so I want to invite you, if you have your Bible or your Bible apps, to open with me. We'll have the uh, verses on the screen behind me as well. But as Jason says, and we, I agree, we want you to be in the Word. You should be in the Word. You should not just accept what I say up here as gospel truth. Read what God's Word says for yourself. And so if you want to open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, we're going to explore together how Jesus' final words to his disciples offer us hope as we search for higher meaning in the midst of our circumstances today. And so as you turn there, let me very quickly kind of catch you up on this story thus far. Jesus is dead. And his followers have scattered like chaff into the wind out of fear of retribution from the ruling religious authorities. And it seems at this moment that Jesus' upstart movement has died with him as he hung on the cross. However, three days later, something shocking starts to happen. The news begins to reverberate throughout the first century Jewish community. There are growing whispers and reports that Jesus has miraculously resurrected. Mary and Martha have claimed to visit an empty tomb and found it guarded by angelic beings. And then there were two men walking on a road from Emmaus to, uh, away from Jerusalem, and they encounter the risen Christ on this long, dusty road from Jerusalem, and he vanishes mysteriously in front of them. The religious leaders of the day are crying foul. They're saying that Jesus' followers have exhumed his corpse in a bid to fool the masses. Can you just imagine for a moment the mix of fear doubt, and excitement that must have hung in the air in that moment. It's almost palpable as you read this. And in the midst of this chaos, Jesus' disciples meet in an upper room in Jerusalem trying to make sense of all the tumultuous events that have happened, not only when Christ was crucified, but in these days following after that. And that's where we're going to pick up our story in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 35. It reads this. It says, then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road. 
and how they recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly standing there among them said, Peace be with you. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Now, I can't prove it, but I think in the original Greek, startled and frightened could be translated as they peed their pants. Okay? I would if I was in that position. And so it continues. He says, Jesus says to them, why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands and then look at my feet and see that it is really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and he showed him his feet. And still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. And so we have this really kind of weird story in the midst of the resurrection narrative where Jesus shows up out of thin air and is going to great lengths to prove his authority and identity to the disciples. And the question we should ask in this moment is why? Because we have to remember that as we're reading this text, the disciples have lost their purpose. They have lost their purpose. The tragic circumstances that surrounded the arrest and murder of Jesus, the rabbinic master, has quite literally ripped that purpose from their souls. In other words, there was a messianic expectation, what Jason was talking about last week, that Jesus as the Messiah was literally going to lead a military revolt against the Roman occupation and was going to raise Israel back up to a prominent status on the world stage. And it was this idea and the anticipation of messianic deliverance that caused so many people in the crowd to grab onto that idea of a higher calling and begin to follow Jesus, even and at least his disciples. Because the truth was, when the circumstances then that they encountered placed Christ on a cross, their purpose was shattered in that moment. And we know this to be true because as we look at the disciples' reaction, their response to Jesus' crucifixion and his post-resurrection experience in Luke 24, because Jesus hadn't hidden the ball from them as it related to his death and resurrection. He had told his followers repeatedly, time and time again, specifically even the disciples, that he was going to die and suffer on a cross. And so he told them this over and over again. And had they sought their higher purpose in Christ by seeking to uh, receive him as who he said he was, instead of imposing their own agenda on who they wanted Christ to be in this moment, their worldview, their purpose, their place in God's larger story would have emerged unscathed in the midst of those circumstances that were so hard hard and troubling. And instead, they scatter. They scatter and they run because they're fearful. They're like on a waves, purposeless, without rudder, being tossed to and fro by the chaos that now surrounds them. And it's easy in this moment to criticize the disciples as we hear and see their reaction in this story. But I think before we do, we have to pause for a moment and examine our own lives. 
Because I think if we were honest, that many of us, myself included, have had a similar reaction when we encounter circumstances that are difficult or hard to understand as well. In as much as this, that when we encounter those circumstances, we allow those circumstances to dictate the truth of the gospel in our lives instead of allowing the truth of the gospel to dictate our circumstances. We allow those, the reality of those circumstances to dictate the truth of the gospel instead of allowing the gospel to dictate the reality of those circumstances. And this means like the disciples, we tend to derive our sense of purpose by imposing our own agendas, our own political philosophies, our own toxic religiosity, our own sexual appetites, our own experiences, our own feelings on the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to shape and mold him into something that we find palatable. In order to make him into something that conforms to our purpose and our desires in life. And then when Jesus doesn't do or say what we think Jesus should do or say, because he's God, hello, it can cause our purpose to come crashing down all around us. It can shatter on the ground like a glass. And thus exists the reality of our circumstances in life where we have given the authority authority to dictate the truth of the gospel in our lives. And any time that we do that, we inevitably will always arrive at the same place. Whenever we try to impose our agenda on Jesus, and he doesn't turn out to be who we hoped or thought he was, we arrive at a place where we begin to say things like, God's not good. It didn't go the way I thought, so God must not love me. This is a difficult circumstance, so God must not be sovereign in the midst of this. When in reality, church, the truth is this. It actually has nothing to do with God at all. Instead, what's happened is that we just disillusioned ourselves by masquerading our selfish desires as purpose and covering it with a Jesus blanket. We've just masqueraded selfish desires and put Jesus on it and said it's good. And the truth is, until we start to let go of who we want Christ to be in this moment, we will never see and experience him for who he actually is. And I'm so grateful for Jesus' response in this moment. It's a little bit weird. He's asking them to stick their fingers in the holes in his hands and feel the scars. He's eating fish to prove to them that he's not a ghost. But I'm so grateful for Jesus' response in this moment because Jesus very easily could have decided to berate his disciples for their fear. He could have decided to chastise them for his lack of foresight in this moment. But Jesus, in his grace and mercy, says, I will reveal myself to you so that you can experience my glory and my presence in this moment. Which offers hope to me that when I find myself similarly awash in the chaos of life, when I'm struggling in my own fears and doubts, when I'm trying to impose my own agendas on the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has grace and mercy for me in those moments too. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he has in his final words to his disciples something truly incredible to say to them. And so let's continue reading in verse 44. It says this, that then he said to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their minds to the understanding of Scripture, and he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. As we've already said, our own experiences, our own feelings, our own material pursuits are not strong enough to bear up under the weight of our soul's desire and need for purpose. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that to be true of his disciples, and he knows it to be true of both myself and all of us that are gathered here this morning. And rather than allowing his disciples to languish under this incredibly heavy burden, in this moment, Jesus is inviting them into a story that's larger than themselves. He's inviting them to be partakers in God's redemptive story to redeem fallen humanity. Jesus, in this sense, is, is flipping their paradigm of purpose in this moment. He essentially says to them, like from the famous song, you're so vain. You probably think this story's about you. <laughs> but it's not. When in actuality, it has nothing to do with them at all. God's redemptive story has nothing to do with disciples any more than it has to do with you or I. God's story of redemption revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ as the central and only figure of that story. And that's what the text means. When it says that Jesus opened their minds, he's explaining to them that all of the Old Testament, from the law of Moses to the prophets to the Psalms, all point to him. You see, the disciples, and sometimes when we do, we do the same thing, when they read God's word, they had this idea that it was a list of rules of things that they could do behaviorally to try and please God. And Jesus says to them in this moment, you don't understand, you don't see the reality of the scriptures is that the, it was meant to help you understand the reality that you cannot save yourself and you are in desperate need of a substitute redeemer. And so Jesus tells them as the central figure in God's incredible redemptive story that his sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection was necessary in order to fulfill God's divine plan of salvation. And church, that is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel this morning because when we try to substitute ourselves in as the central character, as the saving figure in our stories to give ourselves purpose and meaning in life, you and I are too small, too frail, and too broken to play that role. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not. The good news is that Jesus is the man who can play that central role, that saving figure, the ultimate hero of our story. And through him, when we come to him in faith, he invites us to find our purpose and discover our purpose in God's larger and grander narrative of redemption and salvation for humanity. The truth is, church, in Christ Jesus we find our purpose that exceeds every circumstance. In Christ Jesus, we find purpose that exceeds every circumstance. And this point this morning is so important for you to catch. This matters greatly for us today in 2023 for this reason. We live in a world 
We are immersed in a wash in a culture that tells us over and over again that the height of human purpose is discovered in self-expression. You find yourself through self-expression. We're told by the modern-day priests and prophets of our day, a.k.a. the influencers, the celebrities, our politicians, that the height of fulfillment in this life is found in following the desires of our hearts or doing what makes us happy. If it makes you happy, boo, you do you, right? Like, that is what we hear from our culture. Regardless, ultimately, of how base, how destructive, or how perverse those desires may ultimately be. And here's the truth, church. What makes that ideology so dangerous to us, even as believers kind of caught up in this culture, dealing and living in this culture, is that it preys upon our natural inclination to put ourselves in the center of the story and to take Jesus off the throne and remove him elsewhere. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Why wouldn't that sound appealing to somebody? I get to decide what's best for me. What feels good to me is what makes me happy and what brings me fulfillment. I don't want to follow Jesus. Why would I do that? And of course, this thinking, this this kind of thinking that we find going on in our culture stands in direct opposition to the clear teaching of Scripture. Not only in what we've just seen and Jesus saying, all of human history is about me, But as we read on in the New Testament, and specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it tells us that we do not belong to ourselves anymore because Christ has ransomed us unto himself through his shed blood on Calvary. I got to say something that you're not going to want to hear. I got to say something that you're not going to want to hear, but I got to say it because I love you and I'm your pastor. That means something. That means something. That means that what you want in life does not matter because you belong to Christ. That means that what makes you happy in life does not matter because you belong to Christ Jesus. And that means that if you have a behavior or a pattern of thinking in your life that stands in opposition to the teaching and the person of Jesus, it's not Jesus who needs to change. It's you. It's you that needs to change. And that means that what makes you happy and what brings us purpose is no longer found in ourselves because I don't belong to me anymore. Jesus paid a price for me. And that my ultimate joy, my ultimate purpose, my ultimate fulfillment in life is no longer found in the vestige of myself, but it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the central figure of my story. He is the one where I find fulfillment. And so you're probably sitting there now asking yourself, self, what is this purpose that Jesus has called me to? Okay, I can get on board that my life no longer belongs to me, that I've been called into a grander narrative of God's story. But what is my purpose within that story? Jesus doesn't leave that in doubt. He actually clarifies it in Luke 24, verse 47. And let's read that together. He continues and he says that, It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning first in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, and you are witnesses of these things. 
And one of the things that Jason and I often get asked as pastors is, how do I know what God's purpose is for my life? We hear that on a fairly regular basis, right? And I found in my own life that when we arrive at that question in life, it's because of one of two reasons. We've either become so granular in our seeking of God's will, or we've uh, turned it in or mystified it into something that is unknowable. In other words, we've either got so minute in our seeking of God's will, as in Jesus, help me to know this morning whether or not I need to eat frosted flakes or cinnamon toast crunch. I just want your will for breakfast this morning. Or we've turned it into this secret knowledge that requires some kind of like planetary alignment and a tinfoil hat to be able to discern what God's will is for our lives. And the truth is, church, is that God's will in the context of his redemptive story is often so much simpler than you or I make it out to be. Jesus says this, first of all, love me and love your neighbor. And if you do that, you will fulfill all the commandments of the Old Testament. And then in Luke 24, he goes about giving us purpose in the midst of God's redemptive story. He says that it is for us to go and proclaim the gospel message to all nations. And what that means is simply this, is that as believers in Jesus, if we have professed faith in Christ, not Jason and I, not another pastor, not somebody else who assumes a position of ministry leadership, if anyone, including you who are seated here, have professed faith in Christ, we are to be about the business of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That means that we are to do that in every facet of our lives, whether that's across the street at that school that God has blessed us with and intentionally put us here to be a presence at, whether that's at the grocery store in the frozen foods aisle, or whether that's overseas in some land far, far away, Jesus has called us as his followers. He's given us purpose to be able to say that there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And so if you were to ask Jason or I this question, Pastor, how do I know what God's purpose for my life is? We would probably respond in kind by saying, are you making disciples? Are you making disciples as your purpose in life? And if you can answer yes to that question, then we will gladly tell you that you have found your place in God's story and you are living out your purpose for your life. Because when we see Jesus for who he is, as the central character of our story, the truth is, church, that there is no circumstance that we face that can stymie our purpose in life. In a dead-end job, we can still make disciples. In a broken relationship, we can still make disciples. When you can't grow up to be a Ninja Turtle, you can still make disciples. When you face tragedy or loss, you can still make disciples because in Christ, not in myself, in Jesus, I receive purpose that exceeds every circumstance. And so the question then this morning for us is, what do we do with this? What do we do this? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we walk out of there and take this and apply this to our lives? Because if you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking this, what you have just shared sounds very reductive or overly simplistic, you're right. 
you're right. It's very easy for me to get up here on a pulpit on a Sunday morning behind the safety of this pulpit and tell you, turn to page 42 in your Choose Your Own Adventure book and live out your purpose for Christ in every circumstance of your life. That's easy to do. But it's something else entirely different when you're the one who finds yourself caught in a dead-end job. It's entirely different when you're the one who witnesses your marriage falling apart. When there's sin in your life that you feel like, I cannot get over, or you're grieving the loss of a loved one, or just the everyday of monotony seems to drool on and drool on and drool on over and over again. Those circumstances really do have the power to rip our hearts out as human beings. And it is in those moments that we most often lose sight of our purpose. I get that. I get that, church. But more importantly, Jesus understands that too. More importantly, Jesus understands that too. Because that's why Jesus never intended us to live out our purpose by our own strength or by our own merits. Were that the case? Had Jesus said, hey, Nick, I'm trusting you to go out and take the gospel out to the world, fulfill the purpose that I have given you. His movement would have been a flaming dumpster mess from the very inception because every one of us, myself included, would fail and falter under the weight of so high a calling. Life is too hard. Life is too difficult to try and do that on our own. And that's why Jesus, in his final words, promised that he would give them help. And so let's see what Jesus says here in our closing verse in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. He says, and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Jesus promised us something. He promised that we would not have to try and live out our purpose for our lives on our own strength or our own ability. He says, I am sending the Holy Spirit to fill you with power to accomplish what I've set you to do. And it's interesting to note here that Luke's phraseology in the end of uh, chapter 24 is also eerily reminiscent of language that he used back at the beginning of his book to describe another seemingly impossible task. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, he accounts or records the story of the angel Gabriel appearing to a virgin Mary, telling her that she was going to conceive a child. And he does so by saying that the Holy Spirit will descend on you in power. And so we see in these two different experiences, these two different words, that Luke is using similar language, and it's not an accident. Luke is not done, has not done this by accident. He's trying to convey to his readers in his, this moment that the same Holy Spirit who came on Mary and, and, and fell in power on Mary and allowed her the impossible to be able to conceive a child as a virgin is the same Holy Spirit who falls on us in power to do the impossible of taking the gospel out into our world in every circumstance and situation that we face in life. That's the promise that we have. We're not having to do it by ourselves. And that means when it comes to living on a higher purpose in life, we need to stop relying on ourselves, church. 
And we need to start relying on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Not doing so is akin to going out and buying that brand new Corvette for your midlife crisis and then proceeding to like push it around because you refuse to use the motor that's inside underneath the hood. It wouldn't make sense, right? And likewise, it's the same thing in our followership and our faith in Jesus that when we choose to say, I'm going to follow this purpose that Christ has given me, but not use the Holy Spirit in doing that, we're going to fail and falter and it doesn't make sense to not do that. And so what does that look like? There's a lot of misconceptions and ideas about the power of the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is and how He works. I'll just share an example from my own life. One of my struggles is my thinking. My thinking. I tend to have negative thinking. I think negative thoughts about God. I think negative thoughts about myself. I think negative thoughts about other people. And it's very easy to allow that negative thinking to distract me from God's purpose in my life. And so as I come to a place where I begin to seek and the power of the Holy Spirit to fill my life, it's just been a simple prayer. I acknowledge first the uh, power and presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Holy Spirit, I acknowledge that you have come and filled my life through the power and presence of Jesus. And then very simply inviting him into the story of our lives. Holy Spirit, I, you know that I struggle with my thoughts sometimes. Come and by your power and your grace and your mercy, help me to have victory over those thoughts. And the amazing thing that has happened, it hasn't happened overnight, but little by little as I make room and space for the Holy Spirit to operate in my lives, those thoughts have begun to change. They began to redirect and my purpose is refound as the Holy Spirit lives and moves and breathes in me in power. And so church, I encourage you as you do that today. If you recognize this morning that, man, I have looked everywhere for purpose in my life and everything else has come up short, turn to Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of our story that can offer us hope, can offer us purpose beyond any circumstance, and then ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you the power to do so. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.